Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Climate change poses a catastrophic, potentially existential threat to our future. Scientists have been working on this challenge for decades, with our climate modelling increasingly refined. The recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change speaks to the magnitude of the risk and the magnitude of the challenge as climate change increasingly affects all areas of the world and most aspects of our lives on this planet. Politics of climate change have always been a challenge. Corporate and business interests appear to carry more influence on opinion and decisions than science in many parts of the world. And yet, while local action and engagement is tremendously important, international negotiations are key to addressing what is a global problem. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. This week, we're proud to host a discussion about one of the most important policy issues of our time, climate change. In just a short time, world leaders and advocates will come together in Glasgow, Scotland for the 26th Conference of the Parties, or COP26. As we approach this conference, we will bring you a series of conversations to explore what's at stake, and this week we're bringing you an early taste that will frame that discussion that will continue over the episodes later this month. My name's Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University, and it's great to be with my colleague in the studio virtually again today. Hi, Anna Greta. It's great to be here with you. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And Anna Greta, this is such an important conversation that we are having today and then continuing um, over a number of episodes as we, we lead into COP. Absolutely. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by PolicyForum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy, and the Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. You can check out the degree programs and short courses that are available at Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So, Sharon, you're right. This is one of the most important conversations, and it's one that we need to have on a regular basis. We should start just by apologising to our listeners that we're recording virtually during ongoing lockdowns across parts of Australia, particularly here in the ACT. And so the audio challenges, uh, we're trying to do our best, but but um, we have to make allowances, I think, for the odd random animal noise. How, how are things at your end? I'm very excited today because I have a new set of headphones, which I am hoping will contribute just a bit to improving the audio. But we have had a range of animals. We had your chickens in the background previously, Anna Greta. We did. 
We, yeah, so I'm sure we've had birds in the background. I know we've had birds in the background previously. And so, uh, yes, we, we do apologise to listeners. We beg your indulgence and we really are looking very much forward to being back in the studio again at some point. So, Sharon, we're delighted today to have an extraordinary uh, thinker to join us to start the framework or to provide us with the framework that I think will inform the conversations over the weeks ahead. Dr. Robert Glasser is the head of the Climate and Security Policy Centre at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE. He's previously been the United Nations Secretary-General's Special Representative for Disaster Risk Reduction, and he's a, a member of the Secretary-General's Senior Management Team. Before joining the United Nations, he was Secretary-General of CARE International, which is one of the world's largest non-governmental humanitarian organisations. Robert's also undertaken climate change science and policy analysis for the United States Department of Energy and research on peace and conflict issues at the Geneva Centre for Security Policy, the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre here at the Australian National University, and has worked at a number of other universities around the world. It is so good to have him with us today. Welcome, Robert. Thanks. Good to be here. Robert, we, we want to talk today about the upcoming climate negotiations, but we before we do that, it would be great if we could start by taking a look at how we got to this point in terms of the international climate negotiations. There have been a number of long-standing critiques in a number of quarters that multilateral forums like those around climate change it can become little more than a talk fest and don't achieve a great deal. And, of course, it's not just the COP process that those critiques are aimed at. It's you know, most international fora receive those kinds of criticisms. Can you talk us through what has been achieved so far in the international climate negotiations and, and where we've actually come to arrive at this point? Well, it's been a long road, really starting with the Earth Summit, the Rio Earth Summit, and even before that. Uh, and I, I guess what we've seen over time is this, first of all, growing awareness about environmental impacts and even some very early spurred on by science and key testimony that some of the world's leading climate scientists made uh, before Congress at a time when there were consecutive very hot summers, so that which may or may not have been linked to climate change back then, but they created, helped create the political momentum. So yeah, I, uh, basically what we've seen is the commitment, the knowledge and awareness coalescing around this as a major problem. The science, the science essentially reinforcing that, but initially with great scientific uncertainty. And over this period of time, we've seen the science now become m much more certain. Climate deniers often said that when well, you see last year, the scientists said it would be you know, 5.6, and now they're saying it's 4.2, but so they don't know what they're talking about. But actually, each time there's a change, it's it's a change with greater certainty about what's happening. And yes, so that has continually reinforced the, the political process. We had um, the Kyoto process, which was the first real attempt to actually begin locking people down as much as possible to commitments. We've then had the challenge at Paris where we came together with, with uh, after Copenhagen, I remember attending Copenhagen, the Copenhagen COP, where the whole thing really pretty much fell apart and was really a dreadful, I can remember at the end of the, I was working for CARE at the time, at the end of that COP, we were just so dispirited and we had a meeting, the various NGOs, international NGOs around the table. And we thought, what are we going to say about this? This is a total, this has been a total disaster in a whole variety of dimensions. 
And, you know, then we were sort of split between saying this is a disaster and others who said we have to keep it positive and focus that on, you know, that it's another step in the process. But it was a big letdown, as I'm sure everyone remembers. And then Paris was was just a remarkable, a remarkable and astounding and critical accomplishment at a critical moment when uh, really not quite at the 11th hour, but you know, the agreement was reached on on the key pillars of this of the the Paris Agreement, including the nationally determined contributions, which were non-binding. They were basically, you tell us what you think you're going to be able to achieve and commit to doing what you yourself feel you can do, and we agree to tr- to collectively raise our ambition periodically in each uh, reissuance of nationally of more ambitious nationally determined contributions. And developing countries brought on board with the commitment to provide funding because these countries have, were not responsible for the warming. These are countries that were reducing, producing very, relatively few greenhouse gases. So there's a sense in these agreements that it's an obligation for the wealthy countries to help the less developed countries adapt to this problem created by the wealthy countries. And the commitment of funding, which has been inadequate and continues to be a problem in the lead up to Glasgow, as does the lack of adequate ambition to reduce greenhouse gases. So it's been a really long and winding road and there are multiple dimensions, but that's a, 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 at least a rough description of that. Robert, it's, I think it's, it's just so fascinating and insightful to hear from someone who's been on the ground um, across those, those meetings over time. And I wonder if you could just share with us a little more about how some of that played out. You know, what have been the impediments, particularly at Copenhagen? You know, you talked about the disappointment there, but then the, the achievements and the success at Paris. What were the impediments that were preventing the consensus being reached? And then, you know, how did things kind of turn around in Paris? Ooh, now this is a long time to look back on Copenhagen. Uh, I think I think I think there were impediments around making formal commitments. I think there was there were impediments about whether um, all countries should be treated with the same, you know, as an even playing field, in a sense, without reflecting the history of greenhouse gas emissions. There were impediments linked to the financing requirements um, because I remember many many people were saying the commitments that countries were talking about then were not new and additional so that you'd end up robbing the existing aid program, basically rebadging things as climate adaptation, but without coming up with additional money um, and resources. There were questions about what sorts of money should be brought to the table. Is it uh, where countries were committing to new and additional aid to support developing countries or mobilizing private sector and other sources of funding that people were, that developing countries were very suspicious of. They wanted to see new and additional funding brought to the table. Um, so yeah, I think there were a lot of, uh, a huge number of constraints. And I think there, there'd also been this huge, this major buildup of expectations ahead of Copenhagen. And they just unfortunately, it meant that the, the drop and the impact was even more psychologically, even more devastating for everyone who was there. In terms of seeing this on the ground, I just wanted to add, you know, I was working with CARE uh, 
Care International, which is an NGO that in those days operated in over 80 countries around the world. And we were seeing the impacts of climate change then, places like uh, the Horn of Africa, where uh, we're experiencing it. I remember I visited the region, the third the third drought in less than a decade, third major drought with huge impacts on populations. So there was a sense, certainly in the NGO community at this time, that we were already seeing these devastating impacts unfolding around the world. So, uh, Robert, you've given us a great framework, I think, for us to to reflect on the the potential success of the COP that's coming up at the end of the year. But before we get to that discussion, can we turn our attention to some of the issues that you've just begun to highlight there? What's at stake uh, for the coming negotiations? We know in the Australian context that there's uh, we already see an increasingly common extreme weather events and that these are a key focus of our climate debate, particularly here in Australia where, of course, many parts of our country are still recovering from Black Summer in 2019-2020. This year, the United States and other Northern Hemisphere countries have also experienced catastrophic bushfire seasons. The evidence tells us that these sorts of catastrophic weather events will become more frequent as a result of climate change. What sort of risks does this mean for our societies? Risks for all are absolutely severe and and potentially um, existential as time goes on, and not a lot of time has to go on before it is existential for some places and for some countries. For example, small island developing states where low-lying small island developing states are Pacific neighbors where um, with sea level rise and combined with storm surge, stronger storms, uh, it really is a, a question of survival. And in places like Fiji, we're already seeing communities being relocated because of these impacts that are already appearing. I think there there are a few things I'm certain about in in terms of the climate impacts and how they're going to unfold and the impacts on society. The first thing I'm certain about is that we're underestimating how quickly they're going to emerge because it is true that it's the case that there are that very small changes that are imminent will have hugely disproportionate impacts, societal impacts. And just to give you a couple of, exam- couple of examples of that, with, if you look over the last 10 years, extreme heating, extreme heat events have increased 20-fold in just 10 years. And that's because just a tiny shift in the distribution um, if you imagine a bell curve with the tails on each side, on one side being extreme cold and one side being extreme heat, if you shift that just a little with one degree of warming, the area under the tail to the right just becomes enormously large. And so hence, from one degree of warming, in just 10 years, it's a 20-fold increase in extreme weather, in extreme heat. And we're on track for probably two degrees, possibly close to three degrees of warming. So literally 1.5 degrees is here within a decade. So imagine that 20-fold increase continuing to increase. So it's a huge jump from a small and imminent change. One other example is sea level rise, where if if you look at what the IPCC says about um, sea level rise impacts, over the next 50 years, they're saying clearly that what is clear, what is currently a one in 100 year flooding event will become annual events in many parts of the world by 2050. 
because what you see is with just a something like a 10 centimeter rise in sea level, uh, that turns a one in 100 year event to a one in 33 year event and so on. Uh, 20 centimeters becomes a one in 11 year event. So what this means is that, and particularly in places, low-lying coastal communities in the Pacific, parts of Australia, and really fundamentally for Australia in maritime Southeast Asia, where sea level is rising many times faster than the global average for a whole variety of reasons, and where in Indonesia, there are 275 million people on low-lying island communities, that these one in 100 year events will become annual events in many parts of these places within a decade. So they're just two examples of why, um, you know, to, to demonstrate that people are underestimating how serious and how quickly they will emerge. And the second reason I think, the second thing I think we're underestimating is the scale of the impacts. And that's partly because we tend to think, and, and the science as well tends to think that there is, you think of a hazard as an independent event that you might say, what impact does temperature rise have on rice crops? But actually, that's not the only hazard that's happening with climate change, because this is a global systemic change. There are many things happening at once. It's not just temperature rise, it's increased extreme flooding events, it's stronger storms, it's the sea level rise and coastal inundation, it's the population displacement, it's the impact on pests and predators. When you put all of that together and it's extremely difficult to do, it becomes clear that even our very disturbing projections about what the impacts are going to be are almost certainly underestimates of the impacts. And and we started seeing this in Australia's Black Summer, where you see these compound hazards and enormous cascading impacts like record droughts, big record temperatures that trigger record fires that then create their own weather, that then create health impacts like air quality crisis, a tourism crisis, a biodiversity crisis, and almost a water crisis for Sydney. Because as you may recall, at the height of that crisis, Warm Gamba Dam was threatened by the fires as well. So yeah, so underestimating the impacts and also underestimating how rapidly they're going to start appearing. It's quite a remarkable framework that we're underestimating both the speed and the scale of what we might be contending or what we will be contending with in the next decade or two. How prepared are we? How Particularly how prepared are our emergency services, both regionally and globally, for these sorts of events? Well, the, the basic answer is that we're not prepared at all. We're not prepared. What would it look like if we were prepared? We would have, we would first of all have hazard maps. In just looking at Australia, we would have hazard maps that reflect climate. So it's not just, if you look at our hazard maps for floods or bushfire risk, they're all based on historical historical information we would have we would have not, we would not be settling people in places that are exposed to these hazards and that are going to be increasingly exposed we'd be relocating communities out of areas that are already exposed so there's such a broad range of things we need to do to be prepared that i i could go through them all but but and fundamentally and maybe most fundamentally particularly in australia because we're so unusually exposed to these hazards, we would be advocating uh, with enormous energy commitment and ambition for global action to reduce greenhouse gases. 
because if if we don't do that, if the temperatures rise to two, two and a half, three degrees, everything we're doing to prepare to build our resilience will be overwhelmed by the scale of these simultaneous hazards that climate change is amplifying. Robert, you've, you've already started to map out um, what happened in Australia during Black Summer um, and what's happening around the world as a result of the climate emergency. But are there, are there particular lessons that we should take from the, the recent catastrophic fires that we've seen, both in Australia but also um, in North America over the, the past summer and also across, you know, across parts of Europe where we've never seen those kinds of fires before? Are there particular things that we should learn from that in terms of both prevention and perhaps adaptation. Yeah, and we have to we have to clearly do both. I, I think on prevention, I think one thing hopefully we've learned, and I think this is the case in the US, uh, where you've seen a big increase in commitment for climate action following this really remarkable, remarkable summer where we had record setting temperatures, record setting fires record-setting floods in different parts of the U.S., record floods in Europe, fires in Siberia, the largest expanse of Siberia burned in recorded history, uh, over uh, exceeding, I guess it was two years ago, the major fires there. So what we're now starting to see is this is, is an absolute signal of the systemic change where you're seeing not only in particular places, simultaneous hazards, like as in Black Summer, you know, the drought, the, the heat, the, the, and then the fires, but also around the world and simultaneously in different parts of the world. And so I think one lesson we, we take from this, is apart from, is a greater sense of urgency to reduce greenhouse gases, and also driven by a realization that the systemic change is beginning to appear now really clearly. And I think in terms of adaptation, I think we, you know, rec- the recognition of that systemic change means we have to think differently about what we're doing to adapt because we can't assume, for example, as Indonesia did in its extreme drought during a major La Nina recently that, that affected their food supply, that they could purchase food from the region, which they did the largest uh, purchase of rice in history at that point, to overcome their local problem. I think with a systemic change, we can't assume that there is somewhere else that we can go to solve the problem, just as, you know, it's a bit like saying, where can I move to escape climate change? Where can I move in the world? It's here. It's going to be everywhere. It's even going to be in southern extreme heat in southern Canada. So we need to start thinking very differently about some of those more fundamental questions about how we're living when we take our holidays to the South Coast at the peak fire risk season. And we, I think increasingly because this is now a systemic change that we're going through, we have to really think much more fundamentally. We have to think about transformational adaptation, which is... uh yeah, things like when do we take a holiday? Maybe it's the wrong time of year to take a holiday to the South Coast. And we, we just have to adjust much more fundamentally and, of course, reduce greenhouse gases as rapidly as possible. Robert, I think that's the, the perfect place for us to take a very short break. 
and we will come back in just a moment to to continue this conversation and to also start to look forward to the the forthcoming COP in Glasgow. So listeners, do not go away. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Robert Glasser talking about climate risk and the upcoming UN Conference of the Parties in Glasgow. Robert, for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, you've written about the impact of climate change in Southeast Asia, particularly in Indonesia, and you've mentioned a little bit of it earlier. What impact is climate change having on Australia's largest neighbour? Well, I just uh, participated uh, a few weeks ago in a 1.5-track bilateral discussion, ASPE, coordinated with Indonesian colleagues. So we have officials from government, but also from think tanks. And one very prominent Indonesian in that discussion said that for Indonesia, climate change, he believes, is the number one threat facing the country. And yeah, if you you look at a whole range of the climate hazards, the ones that are becoming amplified as the climate continues to warm, whether it's sea level rise or extreme temperature, or or if you look at El Niño, La Niñas, which are natural climate, uh, natural variability in the climate, but that will become more severe under climate change, according more extreme, including uh, the likelihood, according to the IPCC, that extreme El Niños will double in frequency within 10 years. Yeah, and you overlay that the map of those impacts you see that our region, Maritime Southeast Asia and Indonesia in particular, um, is hugely exposed. Really, it's a climate hotspot right on our northern border. And so with, with, with uh, disaster risk, we always focus on three things. We focus on the hazards, in this case, the climate hazards, which are increasing. We focus on the exposure of people to the hazards because you could have hazards but not be exposed to them so they wouldn't really affect you much and in in terms of the exposure indonesia it's a archipelago hugely densely populated relatively the largest area actually globally exposed to sea level rise there's some really interesting studies that have just come out that highlight indonesia in particular and this region in particular as as, as uh, the most exposed in the world in terms of sea level rise and risk. And then you focus on the third factor, which is the vulnerability. So you have hazards, you're vulnerable, or you're exposed to them and you're vulnerable. Indonesia's exposure 
you know, there are very few, much of the economy is in the informal sector. Uh, there are very few social safety nets. There has been a, historically a connection between food price and food insecurity and political instability in the country. There is a strong uh, Islamic extremist movement. Um, there is There are separatist movements, a history of separatist movements. So when you put all of these factors together, it's a huge, huge risk to Indonesia. And I think a greatly underestimated risk, including in Australia, where our bilateral relationship in in a way it's on some levels it's strong we don't feel threatened by indonesia particularly but it's really very shallow in terms of the connection between our societies the understanding of what's going on in the country and therefore i think our ability to help indonesia reduce these risks that will affect australia directly Perhaps we could talk a little bit more about the changes in Indonesia and the way in which that impacts on the region broadly and particularly on Australia in that context. Should it be driving both our engagement in the region as well as our commitment to climate action, for example? I think, you know, if you we look at our, uh, our, our response, our climate change response, for example, through the aid program, it, it, at least most of the rhetoric and, and emphasis has, and, and even programmatic emphasis has been on the Pacific Islands for very under, understandable reasons. We have a historical obligation. Um, they are extremely exposed. Uh, and, and more recently, the rationale has been, I think, as much about China's involvement in the region as it has been about our humanitarian goodwill on these things. But, but actually, if you look at the, if you just focus on the number of people involved, where you have 400 million people in maritime Southeast Asia, uh, in, in these highly, uh, exposed, uh, and vulnerable places, then it's absolutely certain that disruptions in this region, first of all, are going to have huge impacts on the people themselves in the region, humanitarian and other impacts. But also those impacts will, absolutely affect Australia, whether it's uh, transnational crime or terrorism, refugees, a whole range of, and not to mention political instability and possibly conflict resulting from these challenges. So really, we should be focusing fundamentally, much more fundamentally on Indonesia and our engagement, whether it's through defense cooperation or the aid program um, we should be investing. It's in our interest to invest in Bahasa Indonesian language learning in Australia. That has dropped away. We, we were out of the country for 10 years. When I left, when we left, it was prominent and building. When we came back, it had vanished, this focus on Indonesia and language training. So yes, uh, I think we, we really need to ramp up our engagement in the region. Robert, I, I think that is such an important conversation that we need to have in Australia in terms of how we really reconnect. You know, as you say, there was a period where we were connecting strongly with Indonesia and the region and, and how we reconnect. And I hear you talking about Indonesia, and I think we did a, a study of multidimensional poverty in Indonesia just before the pandemic, um, including in some of the islands off the the southwest coast of South Sulawesi, and the poverty there is so deep. The food insecurity is such a problem, and the human cost of the changes that you're talking about are just going to be devastating for people who are, who are already vulnerable. 
perhaps we could um, turn our attention to what can happen at the international level to start to to shift some of this and to turn our attention to the upcoming COP in Glasgow. Robert, what do you expect to see play out at COP? What what do you think is going to happen there? Well, I'm hoping next month, starting with starting close to home, I'm hoping that Australia will and our Prime Minister will have come will be coming to Glasgow or, or Australia will be attending the COP having just had consultations with the U.S. in which uh, the U.S. has now committed to providing very sensitive technology to Australia. And we'll see if that turns into a quid pro quo for Australia to um, be then very responsive to U.S. wishes that it increase ambition on climate, on mitigation, climate mitigation, because we are perceived as um, as a laggard internationally on this point, uh, and or been highly criticised for not being more ambitious on climate mitigation. So uh, I'm hoping and expect actually our prime minister to announce a net zero by 2050 uh, commitment, or at least the language will be much more like a commitment than it has been so far. And I would assume that will include a 2030 target that's more ambitious as well. And then in the lead up to COP, we've, we've seen the Japanese increase their commitment. Uh, the, the UK do the same. Most of our major trading partners have done that, the EU as well. Uh, we'll see whether China increases its ambition. There was a lot of disappointment earlier this year when uh, John Kerry visited China and was hoping to lock in greater commitment and he left empty-handed, but you know that's not at all surprising from my perspective because if China is going to announce something, they're not going to do it at the to be seen to be doing it because a U.S. envoy visited. <laughs> that would uh, diminish their uh, their their prestige in a way, and in, in the, the mileage they could get out of the announcement. So it's possible that they'll, and I hope they will, increase their ambition. And, and we're waiting to see also what India. Uh, will do. Um, so, I think I think it's likely that there will be increased ambition, increased commitment made on mitigation. I don't think it will keep us to 1.5 degrees of warming, uh, which is the lower limit set in the Paris Agreement. I think most scientists who uh, follow these issues much more closely than I do, from a, on a technical level anyway, would say we're we're already committed to more than 1.5 degrees just because of the inertia uh, in the climate system, the inertia from emissions we released over the past decades. And so really what we're talking about is trying to stay beneath the two degrees, the upper limit set in Paris. And I don't think this COP will get us there. I think it will, uh, by the COP, we will be somewhere under three degrees, I hope, in terms of uh, the existing commitments. And then, of course, the pressure will be on to keep building ambition. And I'm actually optimistic about that because uh, that pressure to increase the ambition will come from these disasters. Fundamentally, these disasters, these compound cascading impact disasters, I think will become more and more obvious and more and more frequent. And the the politics will respond to that and the ambition will go up. Not to mention... The, the enormous and absolutely remarkable global energy transformation where the costs of renewables is just continuing to 
to drop and storage technology. So that as well will accelerate the transition. In terms of uh, the mobilizing of the finance or, you know, there's this, uh, there's the, is it Article 6, the rule book, um, financing the rules, the systems. I think they'll make, I would hope they would make progress on that and hopefully it will be finalized. I think the U.S., and Europeans will come to the table with more financing. I don't think it's, I know there was a report recently that Oxfam was analyzing the financial commitments, the 100 billion a year. I don't think, I think we'll come closer to the figure and hopefully close enough so that developing countries can support a successful outcome at, uh, at Glasgow. So yes, that's my optimistic view. And I, I think the optimistic view is is very important here. So I'm I'm glad to hear the optimistic view. But I'm wondering about the flip side. And in terms of that increased ambition that you talk about as being so absolutely critical and needing to be signalled in Glasgow, what are the minimum acceptable outcomes that we we need to see at the conference? You know, we we hope for better, but but what's the minimum we we would really want to see there well i think at a minimum we don't we want a successful uh, a successful meeting that takes us forward i think you know it's a bit like that i mentioned in copenhagen we were sitting around the table talking about uh how should we describe this as ngos should we talk about this as disappointing but focus on the success or really say this is and there were some some that felt it was actually better in term to a better strategy to um, to mobilize action to say it was a failure that starkness would be more likely to trigger greater ambition and action next time and yeah so I would hope that this will be successful and that it will that it will achieve those outcomes i think if if it collapses because of the tensions between the us and china which i don't think is likely or if uh china tries to link its displeasure with the us british and australian agreement to its the extent of its commitment i think that would be unfortunate i I'm hoping that at least with China, they see it much more, even though it is in their medium to longer term interest to be active, self-interest to be doing this, not just because of the, the energy market, the renewable energy market that they're actively involved in, but also because of their huge exposure to climate impacts. So, yeah, I guess I'm, I don't think there'll be a, a truly bad outcome. Uh, I think it will, but I'm also certain it won't be the ambition we need to keep warming to two degrees. So it'll be somewhere in between. And, you know, we are inching forward. The problem is the climate isn't moving at that pace. It's moving at a much faster pace. So we have to accelerate. And, and Robert, can you just tell us a little more about how you see Australia's role? You mentioned as we all know, that Australia is seen as something of a laggard in in relation to, to climate change and we've lacked the necessary ambition. Has that written us out of these discussions? 
has has it meant that Australia has been marginalised in terms of what we can bring to the debate? How is Australia's role um, playing out at the moment, given the politics of this? I think there are probably low expectations among the international community just because of the role Australia has played it, its uh, its uh, level of ambition previously. Um, so I think there's low expectations. And in that respect, I think there's a big opportunity politically for Australia. Uh, and I think, I think Scott Morrison knows this. Uh, he knows that it's fundamentally, he's probably focused on, on the domestic politics as well. That if he can go to an election with this major investment in Australia's future defense <laughs> through these nuclear submarines with a coming out of lockdown, COVID lockdown, so that everything's opening up and people are feeling good again. And thirdly, with a commitment to net zero by 2050, I think that will be enough to attract some moderates uh, politically to support, uh, in, in terms of the election, some moderates that have been worrying about climate. So I think at least domestically, that is a huge, that will be hugely benefit. I'm just focusing on the politics, not what I think about those politics. And then um, internationally as well, I think it will keep doing something like that would, would, could very quickly change the views of, view of Australia, assuming the 2030 target was significant, the, the intermediate target. But it will certainly keep Australia on side with some of its key allies, uh, and so I think there's some big political opportunities there for Australia to to uh, to be more ambitious and to and to at, at the COP. I think there's some fantastic words of wisdom and of hope potentially in that in that framing of the Australian role. Um, Robert, we could talk with you about this for a very long time, but we're coming toward the end of our discussion. We like to end our podcasts with a piece of solid policy advice. And so I wonder if you'd like to offer us your number one recommendation for negotiators at the upcoming COP. What outcome we'd like to see? Or, and in your opinion, what's the best step that we can take towards oh achieving it? God, that's a hard one. <laughs> uh, the single for negotiators in particular. Yeah. You can have part A, B and C. You know, I think... You know, for me, what I've observed in my life and uh, the various positions, I've, jobs I've had around the world is that you see when when people feel the heat of a problem, they change. And when they don't feel the heat, you end up getting uh, incremental changes. And we're at the point now that we need to feel the heat. If we're not feeling it already, we need to begin feeling it. And of course, the problem with climate is that uh, if we wait until we really feel the heat, it's too late because of that inertia problem. If we, if we, it's not like uh, air pollution from cars that we can say, well, let's wait until the air quality gets really bad and then we'll get rid of leaded petrol and put catalytic converters on cars and the air will clear. If we wait, the climate it continues to warm for decades and we've really stuffed up. So for me. Uh, you know, I think, sadly, and this is such a pessimistic thing to say on one level, that I think we need some more immediate, simultaneous events that f that create a sense of danger and heat, and that 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 the politics then, because those negotiators, our negotiators at the COP, are responding to the politics at home, and the politics at home 
that whether it's prime ministers or presidents are responding to their electorates and sometimes providing leadership. But um, so they need to, if they don't feel the heat, if they don't, uh, then it doesn't change. So oh, it's a terrible thing to say, but this last summer was superb in terms of preparation for the U.S. to be engaged in Glasgow and for the Europeans as well. And I think that if I have to really realistically think what's the most likely way of getting a strong outcome, it, it is you know major events that then create heat for the uh, negotiators to negotiate am- greater ambition. Robert, we would normally end with the the piece of advice. So this has been such superb analysis that you've given us, you know, right across from the Australian domestic situation to the global situation. And there is a there is hope here, but there's a lot of pessimism as well. And I wonder if we could just slip in a, a final question to you, and that is, I think for for so many young people, this is such a, a critical issue in a way that it is not for older generations, I think. And could we end today with, with a message that you would give to young people in terms of perhaps claiming some of that hope for how we move forward from this situation? Mm, yes, I uh, feel there is, in spite of the negative uh, the risks ahead, I think there is great reason for optimism. The first, is, and that we should not despair about what's happening with climate because there's a big opportunity to, we, we're, we're committed to big problems, but there's a huge opportunity both to prevent those the worst of those problems and also at the same time create a future for Australia and for the world that is has enormous possibilities and potential. And the energy, the great energy transformation, this unprecedented energy transformation to unlimited renewable energy is transformational. And so I'm very optimistic about that. That's transitions happening rapidly. I think also the financial regulators, asset managers, they're already, you know, the profit motive, um, which to some extent got us into this mess with climate, is also one way we may get out of it because asset managers are already now redirecting investments. They're seeing that it's not profitable to invest in fossil fuels. They're seeing that it's not profitable to invest in assets that are exposed to climate hazards. And so you've got this massive shift in venture capital, in investments away from fossil fuels and vulnerable assets towards climate resilience and renewables. And that's just going to accelerate faster than anyone realizes. And finally, I think for young people in particular, young people are leading the uh, efforts globally to raise awareness across societies to, to help those older people like us feel guilty if we're not addressing this issue and selfish if we're not addressing this issue. We've been able to enjoy the benefits of fossil fuels and very few of, well, many of the impacts in terms of air pollution, but not these catastrophic impacts. And they are quite rightly and fundamentally and importantly playing this role of waking us up to this problem and generating action. So I'm really optimistic that that, those combination of things are going to get us where we need to go. And that at the end of that road, there's a much more exciting and carbon-free future waiting for all of us. 
Robert Glasser, it has been an absolute privilege to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure to be here. Sharon, that was an extraordinary conversation with Robert. Uh, He's given us such a lot to think about, I think, as we head towards the COP26 in the next few weeks. What were your take-home messages from the conversation today? Oh, look, that was an amazing conversation, Anna Greta, and I just feel better informed and I feel as though I have a better understanding about some of these very complex issues as we go into COP. What I really loved about that conversation too was just that note of hope that Robert ended on because so much of this conversation leads one to despair. But having that sense of hope, I think, is just so important. Absolutely. So we get the message of urgency. We understand the importance of listening to the science. And we also understand the landscape of what might be ahead, uh, as I'm sure many of our listeners will be following the negotiations at COP. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. You know that we're very interested in receiving feedback and you can find us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group. And we would, of course, love you to to subscribe to our podcast, leave a review on whichever platform you pod with. Uh, We read them and we take them seriously. Next week, we'll be back with a regular episode before continuing on the COP series. So uh, we really look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye for now from Anna Greta Hunter. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.